Hello and welcome to an emergency edition of the Politics Home podcast. Um, Regular listeners will know that we don't normally do a podcast twice a week, but there is so much going on in Westminster at the moment that we felt we should uh, check in with you guys again. Um, Since we last spoke to you, Theresa May asked for a Brexit delay, got a shorter one than the uh, one she wanted. Then all hell broke loose with a weekend of cabinet plotting, ministers contradicting each other on the airwaves, and on Monday night, MPs voted to effectively seize control of the Brexit process. Um, I'm joined, as ever, by Kevin Schofield, a man who has been uh, quite busy over the past few days, editor of Politics Home. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Hi, Mark. And I'm delighted to say we've got Nikki DaCosta here. Nikki is Senior Counsel at the Cicero Group, and she is the ex-director of Legislative Affairs at Number 10. So uh, she was tasked with helping to steer the government's programme through Parliament and is uniquely placed to help us navigate the uh, the chaos at the moment. Uh, so let, let's kind of dive straight in with the biggest story at the moment, the uh, indicative votes move last night. So... This is going to need a little bit of explaining, Kevin. Yeah. What happened? What happened? <laughs> yeah. Um, Just generally, what happened? Uh, I'll try and make it as succinct as possible. So, yeah, so there were... Um, the Prime Minister, uh, the government put down an amendable motion uh, for debate on where we are on Brexit. Now, that was as a result of Meaningful Vote 2 being lost the week before last. Uh, and because it was amendable... As the name suggests, MPs were able to put down amendments. There were seven put down in total. Uh, The Speaker chose three of them, the main one being the Oliver Letwin um, uh, amendment on indicative votes, which would essentially allow Parliament to take control of the order paper on Wednesday afternoon, during which time MPs will be um, given the opportunity to vote on... uh, different options for where we go from here on Brexit. Now that's what, So that was the one that stood the most chance of passing, and it was the one that the government was desperate to stop passing. Um, in the morning yesterday, it looked as though it would definitely pass. Then the rumour mill was that actually it was going to be a lot tighter, and that the government was starting to look a little bit optimistic. But in the end, it passed by 27 votes, 329 to 302, if I remember rightly. Um, so it was pretty comfortable in the end, despite the government throwing everything at it. Theresa May started off the day by saying, well, look, I can't guarantee I will even um, be able to implement whatever if uh, an alternative plan can be agreed upon by MPs. Then Stephen Barclay was saying, well, you know, this would be essentially a constitutional outrage. You know, we could have far-reaching implications for future governments um, if Parliament can seize control of the of the parliamentary agenda. So, um, so yeah, um, it was a pretty, yet another humiliating loss for the, for the Prime Minister. Nikki, a lot of our listeners this morning have been asking us, you know, a very similar question. And this, was, this is from Jeff Hughes. He asks, um, does the government actually have to accept uh, any of the decisions made by, by Parliament through this indicative votes process? The government doesn't have to accept them if they're just staying as resolutions. 
what we know is that the speakers indicated if the amendments would take the form of saying that this House instructs or this House orders the government to negotiate X, then the speaker would view that as um, a matter that could potentially incur, if the government were to ignore it, would be a matter of contempt. Now, what that means, and we've actually been there before, so people have a, a past template, um, but that's a humiliating step were that to be, were that to be found. Um, it could also mean the suspension of ministers from the House. Um, but it is politically something you could, if you felt very strongly, you could potentially weather it. Um, if you wanted to bind the government, and we have had already threats of that, I think, from, from Nick Bowles, uh, they could, um, under this mechanism that they've secured for themselves, introduce legislation to then compel it. That would take a couple of weeks, I think, um, because it would need to go through both houses. So there are ways to make it more binding. So I say the initial thing is that it would be, if it got a majority, it would be very politically compelling. Uh, you can make it more politically compelling via the contempt process. But if you were looking for... Uh, the, the absolute sort of belt and braces you'd legislate. However, even then, I'm sorry to go on, no, no. This, this is the thing, even then the government could say, we think this is so goes against what we've been elected for, we do not feel we can comply with this, and therefore, emergency break, and then you, you would go seek to go to the general uh, public uh, through a general election. Um, you know, but it is, you know, we are extraordinary times. Kevin, some Brexiteers have, have kind of been making clear that if, if um, MPs do go for a kind of softer form of Brexit that, that contradicts the Tory manifesto, they would rather see an election. Do, do you think that's kind of a likely outcome now? I mean, difficult to predict anything at the moment. Well, it's difficult because it's complicated by the Fixed Term Parliament Act, so there needs to be essentially votes in the House, either a confidence vote, the government would have to lose a confidence vote, which would involve Tory MPs voting to bring down their own government, and the DUP, who are still in a uh, confidence and supply arrangement, they would have to vote to bring down the government. Or uh, the other way is that the Prime Minister would need to come forward, like she did in 2017, saying, I want to have an election, and two-thirds, yeah. I think I'm right, two-thirds of MPs would have to support it. And I'm not convinced that either would be successful, because you've got Tory MPs who, you know, might not like the deal, but they are certainly do not want Theresa May to lead... The government lead the Tories into another election, um, so I don't. I'm not sure that that would allow an election to happen. So I mean, I would still say it's 50-50 in the balance. I say probably not. I think there's probably more chance of a change of Tory leader in the short term, and then he or she may wish to seek their own mandate maybe later in later in the year. Maybe once Brexit has maybe calmed down a little bit. But I mean, who, who knows when that might be. <laughs> Nikki, at the uh, at the time we're recording this, we we don't yet know the precise kind of shape of this indicative votes process and what options MPs will be presented with. Um, what would your kind of money be on as as things Parliament will now have to to consider? Ooh. So um, I think we can probably take as a template what the government suggested, or so there being seven options now. You're going to test my memory here. Um, but so you've got the, the, the government was certainly suggesting that the PM's deal should still be one of those options. Uh, then you would have no deal. Then you would have um, uh, Canada. Then you'd uh, or some sort of version of a, a free trade agreement. You would have uh, Norway plus. Uh, you might have sort of the the Labour Brexity. 
plans or whatever, whatever it is, you could have a second referendum, and I ha- can't get to seven there. Um, <laughs> but, but essentially, it, um, what Letwin has said is uh, that he wants MPs to come forward with their options uh, and propose them. Uh, and the Speaker, for once, actually has dodged this one and said, no, 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 I am not going to touch that. We're a barge pole. Mr. Letwin, you go away and work out how to get those motions onto the uh, uh, come, come forward. I don't think the speaker wants to be the one to to narrow the the group of choices. And am I right in saying, as far as we understand, it wouldn't be like a normal uh, Commons voting procedure? They'd be doing it on pieces of paper. Yes, is that right? Yes. So they, there's they, you do this a little bit for a um, a deferred division uh, where MPs are issued with slips of paper and it says what they're what they're voting for and they tick whether it's an I or, or an A um, and, but in this situation you had all the options on the ballot paper um, uh, and then they would literally be allowed to uh, according to Oliver Letwin they would just literally tick against those that they fancy um, no limit on the number that they can vote for other than those on the table uh, and then they'll tot up the numbers and basically publish that uh, may not produce a majority in any way they've been quite pragmatic about it just maybe just gives a bit more of a sense of where there is at least uh, some interest in different options. And would it be a secret ballot then, or would they be, they'd have to say you know, each ballot paper would be assigned to a particular MP so you would know how they, how they voted? Yes, they, I mean, what they've said is they, they want to do it, so when they vote, they'll vote on all the options at once on this piece of paper to avoid people gaming it out. Um, although I imagine you could peer over somebody's shoulder and go, ooh, you know, um, <laughs> you know a quick whiz around the, whiz around the lobby and, and see what's happening. Um, but yes, so they, so they will publish uh, the result of how different people voted. So yeah, lots of data there. Absolutely. Kevin, of those kind of seven options that, that Nikki outlined, do you, do you have a sense of kind of, you know, which ones the Commons might be able to build some kind of consensus around, or, or are we very likely to just find that we, we replicate the current <laughs> nobody-has-a-clue situation? Well, yeah, I think there's a fair chance that we'll end up with none of them commanding an overall majority. I mean, instinctively, I think, I mean, it is a... The Brexiteers keep saying it, it's a Remainer Parliament, so, you know, you're more likely to see something like the Norway model is probably going to be the most popular, I would think, but whether you know it has a majority, I think, is open to debate. Labour's one is slightly harder in that it doesn't involve a single market membership, but it does involve customs union membership and a close... Uh, alignment with the single market is how they describe it. Um, although you know it's up for debate whether the EU would even go along with with what Labour are looking for. So yeah, I think you're looking at one of the softer options rather than a Canada free trade agreement. Um, but as I say, it all all come down to whether one can command the majority of the House. And if not, then you know if we're in chaos now. Then it's just it keeps more chaos on top of that. Although there, I guess. Theresa May's deal becomes much more attractive because it will literally be that or no deal. Uh, Nikki, um, Kevin touched on kind of the uh, the European Union's take on some of those options. Are there, are there any of those that kind of jump out at you as unicorns, to use a much overused phrase? Um, it, 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 I have to caveat, it's not my area of expertise. So, I, you know, I, I, in the intricacies of different you know, trade agreements, different kinds of or whatever. Mm. Um, uh, I think what we do know is that 
um, the key aspect is that most things they need to be compatible with the backstop um, that we know that for whatever future because all of these are really about the future relationship with the exception of the you know a second referendum option so all of those need to sit on that that's to be negotiated as part of the political declaration uh, and it will piggyback on the withdrawal agreement so that bit's not changing so um, the difficulty for probably Canada, as I understand it, is obviously the, the regulatory alignment and the problems for leaving Northern Ireland uh, isolated. But um, it, it's not my area, so sorry. I'm very That's much a domestic procedural person. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kevin, is there any sign at all that, you, you know, this, um, this it's being described as, as Parliament seizing control of the Brexit process, and you talked about a kind of remain-heavy Parliament there. Is there any sign this is going to swing Brexiteers behind Theresa May's deal? Well, it's interesting, actually. So this morning we've seen Jacob Rees-Mogg come out and uh, say he now realises it's a choice between um, Theresa May's deal, which he has long criticised, and no Brexit. Mike Fabrican, another Brexiteer, has said he supports Jacob in that assessment. I've tried this morning to get in touch with Boris Johnson's people who are uncharacteristically silent on this, which I think speaks volumes. There's obviously an awful lot of um, discussions going on behind the scenes. I mean, up until now, they've been saying, well, unless the DUP jumps and supports it, then we can't support it. So what they're looking for is for the DUP to give them cover. Um, now, thus far, Theresa May had a phone conversation with Arlene Foster yesterday. didn't go well. Um, the DUP are still very much against it. Jim Shannon, the DUP MP, was on the Today programme this morning. didn't sound as though... They were up for getting on board with the deal. They still think that the backstop is anathema. Um, as long as the backstop's there, they say they won't support it, despite all the attempts by the government to get the DUP on side. But it's now interesting now. It's almost as if a lot of these Brexiteers have given up on the DUP and are now starting to say, you know what, if we don't vote for this deal, then we're going to get no Brexit at all. But even then, there's no guarantee. Even if the whole of the ERG, which I don't think they would all vote as one with the deal. I think there are, there's still a good number of them there who are just absolutely opposed to it and won't change their mind. Um, so I still think it's going to be tricky for her to get... I mean, it's 145. She lost it by the last day. So 149. So to try and win over that 75 MPs, you've got to get to change their mind, which is an awful big hurdle to, to clear. Um, there was an emergency cabinet meeting yesterday at which Theresa May said that she was going to try and bring the meaningful vote back today, Tuesday. Obviously, that's not going to happen. It all hinged on the DUP and ERG, and she wasn't getting any joy out of them yesterday. Potentially, she could bring it back tomorrow. She's got until close of play today to table a motion. Um, so, you know, if you get more ERG people throughout the course of the day saying they're going to come on board, then perhaps... It sounds to me like they've been spooked by the vote last night and this terror that they've got of Parliament taking control and um, bringing in an even softer form of Brexit than what the Prime Minister has agreed with the EU. So um, I wouldn't rule out the deal um, passing at some stage, but whether it's this week or not, I think is probably unlikely. Nikki, we saw John Burko intervene last week and um, effectively say that the government you know, should not bring meaningful vote back for a third, a third time. Um, how can we end up with a, a third vote if that's if that's the case? 
So when he made his judgment, he said that he differentiated between meaningful vote two and meaningful vote one, and said when meaningful vote two came back, it was on the deal plus something extra that had been negotiated, and there were three new documents, two of which had been agreed with the EU, one of which was, I think, the UK's one, which was the legal advice. So when the PM went um, to the EU Council, she got them to confirm what had previously been agreed, the extra reassurance and the backstop, and put that into a legal document. So she's now returned with another document, uh, which solidifies that situation. So that is probably the first thing that they're going to push with the Speaker and say, actually, this sort of meets your previous criteria. Um, you know, can we go ahead? Um, I think it's going to be require probably a little bit of shuttle diplomacy with the Chief Whip having to go and knock on Mr Burko's door and say, Mr Burko, uh, Mr Speaker, sir. Um, and that's going to be... I, I imagine the Speaker will enjoy that tremendously <laughs> um, and sort of sit there and read, read the motion. Um, alternatively, if that's not enough, then the government will need to bring forward a motion which says, notwithstanding the view of the Speaker and that it's convention, we will nonetheless have another vote on this. Uh, they would need a majority for that. But if you get a majority for that, that would be an awfully good omen to say, actually this is now what the Commons wants to vote for. But essentially, I think this is a race now between the indicative votes process and that sort of taking control and seeing if the, if the PM's deal can stay alive a lot, enough, long enough for the people to fall in behind it. Uh, and it's touch and go. If they leave it too late, I think actually the, the deal drops away. And in terms of the timetable on the back of the EU Council last week, maybe explain where we are in terms of... what. So we're not leaving anymore on Friday. No. That's been pushed back now either April the 12th or if the deal is passed by April the 12th, May the 22nd. Indeed, yes. And, and if they haven't passed the deal by April 12th, they're looking for a confirmation as to what exactly uh, the UK would want and what there's a majority for. And so we actually only have pretty much two and a half weeks for the Commons to try and find a position. So that's two and a half weeks either to keep the deal alive uh, and go again or... Uh, for the Commons to come to majority, and that's going to be quite tight. If we if we ended up with a a, a kind of third meaningful vote that was defeated again, would would that be? Do you think that would be it for this deal, or or is there a, a sense in which we could end up with kind of four, five, six? Uh, this is uh, this is sort of a government defined by scrappiness, you know. Um, and and I'd say that you know when I when I was in number ten, you know, it's like oh my god, okay, right, what more can we do? What 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 possible way through this can we find? So look, if you lose meaningful vote three, but you only lose it by a bit, and you think do you know what, it is worth going again, then you start to work your way through other options. So you can bring back another paving motion. And in the worst case scenario, you end up doing nuclear things like saying, OK, if the rule is you can't ask the same question in the same session and you can't ask, the, and the question is indeed the same, then you end up changing the session. Uh, that's quite tough, difficult to do. I'm not saying this is likely, I'm just saying that, yes, there are options. Would that involve another Queen's speech? Or can you do it, it without a Queen's it speech? It would be, it would be, yes. Um, yeah. uh, although I understand that you could say it under Queen's Commissioner, it wouldn't necessarily have to be the Queen. And I imagine that the horse and carriage is not going to be there. It would be probably Queen and civvies, quick speech, uh, <laughs> and not necessarily for a very long time. You could actually just do a quick Queen's speech, uh, say that the purpose of this session is to do this, and it wouldn't actually have to be of particularly long duration. Um, and then, you know, you're not preempting. You know, for example, if it was about another prime minister feeling that they were then boxed in by an entirely new programme, you could actually leave that question to one side. It's often said that we're living in kind of um, unprecedented times at the moment. Um, but is there a kind of um, historical example of this indicative votes process being used before? Have we been in a situation like this? 
Um, well, it's, it's not indicative vote. Um, on the Lords reform, uh, where there are different options with different percentages of how much of the Lords should be elected, um, that was designed to get different views. It was, though, you know, the, 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 the scuttlebutt, so to speak, in the usual channels is that that was deliberately designed as a motion to not lead to any majority and basically to puncture Lords reform. So uh, not in a way that was designed to constructively secure a majority. Right, so that wasn't government attempting to get something done, but it was <laughs> quite quite the opposite. Um, Kevin, all of this has kind of um, taken place against the backdrop of um, real pressure on the Prime Minister. Um, there was a... The, the, the Sunday papers were full of stories about a uh, potential cabinet coup against mm. uh, Mrs May. Um, seems to have fizzled out. Can you talk us through kind of what, what that was and, and uh, how it's played out? Yeah, I mean, it didn't really last until Sunday lunchtime, really. Um, as, as, as is often the way with these, I remember when Gordon Brown was the Prime Minister, that it was often the way that there were coups rumoured and then very, very quickly the pressure was on the ministers rumoured to be involved to come out and they come under a lot of pressure to come out publicly and say, no, no, we're fully behind Gordon Brown. And so that it, it followed a very similar pattern on Sunday. So the, the two potential um, caretaker Prime Ministers was the, um, the theory put forward. One was David Liddington, who is the de facto deputy at the moment, and the other um, is Michael Gove, which, were it to come to pass, would mark a pretty remarkable political turnaround, if you remember how his last um, leadership bid went a couple of years ago. Um, so, yeah, both of them, though, came out very, very quickly on Sunday morning to say, this isn't true, um, we support the Prime Minister, we're fully behind her, and she needs to stay in post to try and get her deal through and get on with the job. But, you know, that's what they're saying in public. Undoubtedly, behind the scenes, Cabinet Ministers are deeply unhappy at Theresa May's Prime Ministership, and um, uh, I, th I think the clock is ticking, certainly, on her departure from... Number ten, but it's not going to be as, as quick. I mean, if you read the papers on Sunday morning, you'd have thought she'd have been out by by now, actually. Um, so she's managed to buy herself a little bit more time, but now she's completely at the mercy of events. There are conflicting reports about um, whether the prime minister kind of offered uh, hints at her potential departure in, in that meeting with Brexiteers on Sunday. Um, do you think it's now inevitable that she will? Set out a timetable for leaving uh, in order to try and get them get them behind this deal. Or yeah, I mean, logic would suggest that she would. You know, if that is the price that has to be paid to get this deal through. But even then, there's no guarantee. You know, so if she was to say, right, vote for this deal, and I'll leave, and even that didn't work, then you know, where is her authority then? Then she's a completely cut off at the knees and it's not quite as simple as her saying I'll go and then the deal will automatically pass um, I mean I know that people who were at that meeting so you had Boris Johnson at Checkers Ian Duncan Smith Jacob E. Small you know, so it was put to her you need to put a date on your departure and in typical Theresa May uh, fashion she sort of listened to what they said but didn't really give away what her thinking was I mean Clearly, she will know the political reality of the situation. Is that you know she's essentially has can't get anything through Parliament. Uh, her authority is shot to bits last night. Another thirty Tory MPs rebelled. Three ministers resigned. Um, so you know, as I say, she is living on borrowed time now. But the one thing she's got in her favour is that there's still no obvious 
alternative. If there's no unity candidate out there who you'll say, well, if, she, if they replace her with him or her, then the Tory party will come together and Brexit will all be fine. So, you know, there's no guarantee that uh, her going will you know, tie everything up in a nice little bow. That's very, very far from certain. So um, that uncertainty almost is what's keeping her, keeping her in place. Um, Nicky, you've, you've worked with the, the Prime Minister. Do you, do you think she's kind of getting to the point now where um, she perhaps thinks, I need, to, I need to step aside to get this deal over the line or...? I, it, it, it's it's difficult to judge, and, and it's, you know I have to also confess it's always difficult for me emotionally to have these conversations because you know mm. you know this, this is my former boss, yeah. and, you know somebody you have a great deal of affection for, whatever the political circumstances. Um, so, but with that aside, you know, she, she'll have heard that message. She, we, we, she's had this now conveyed via the Whip's office um, by numbers of MPs, etc. So she won't be blind to that message. I think the key thing for her will be. Um, much as it's been pointed out, is will it make a difference? Uh, and one interpretation of what was said on Sunday was essentially, show me that it will give, deliver the numbers and then there's something in play here. Uh, now, the way I'd interpret that is if we see people peeling off today and then Boris says, I can deliver a further X number and name them, uh, and they say, and, and you can do, and, the, and, the, and then they can crunch the numbers and go, yeah, actually, we're, we're kind of over. We need a few more on labour, etc. But we can do that. Then, in those circumstances, I think the PM would say, actually, it's worth it because she will have united the party. She will have got her deal done. She will have a legacy on that. Um, it is the only way, I think, now to a legacy and one which says, actually, having achieved quite something remarkable, were it to happen. Uh, despite the, the, the sheer awful numbers in the Commons. Do you think that there's any chance in which she could kind of stay on to pursue the, the domestic agenda? You know, the, the Burning Injustices speech was obviously a, a major part of her taking office. There are some elements of that which I think are so important. So, for example, on mental health, and I can absolutely say that, you know, on internet safety, etc., these are things that the PM really cares about. Um, I think there were times back in the summer when we got through certain things when we always thought, we thought, actually, maybe, you know, the PM can go on to have a domestic legacy. I don't think that's very realistic right now because the, the party is at such war with itself. There is such a lack of, of trust and goodwill. And you use up political credit as Prime Minister, much in the same way that chief executives need to be swapped out. There's a, there's a study somewhere on that, you know, FTSE 250 chief executive switch every five years. In political terms, in these circumstances, I think it's a relatively short duration for PM. But I think actually that political credit is so low that actually there wouldn't be enough to spend then in getting the domestic agenda through. So my hunch is that this is probably the limit as to what can be achieved. This weekend's coup attempt obviously didn't come to anything. The Prime Minister's still in her job. Um, Do you think the Remainers in the Cabinet are kind of weakened by that? Do you think they sort of overplayed their hand in a sense? Uh, No, because I think it it doesn't fall down simple Brexit remain lines, this one. You know, she's got, you know, she's annoyed the Brexiteers in the Cabinet just as much as as the... Remain back in uh, minister, so so no, I don't think so. They're still uh, flexing their muscles as we speak. The cabinet meeting um, going on, and uh, a good many of the remainers, David Gawke, um, Amber Rudd, Greg Clark, David Mundell, were impressing on her that she needs these indicative votes tomorrow. They must be uh, free votes, which I think is, is inevitable. Really, I think it's going to be very difficult for her to whip to whip those votes. As I say, she doesn't have the authority to, to do that. So so no, they're they're, they're not massively. Weakened. Um, it's the prime minister who's who is who is undoubtedly weakened. So I think that 
where we are now, essentially, is we're just marking time uh, to find out, basically, how Parliament votes tomorrow. As Nicky says, whether the ERG people can fully come on board, whether that can maybe swing the deal. The deal might still pass, which would absolutely be astonishing, really. So... Uh, you know, I hate to fall back on cliche, but it's febrile, it's fluid. You know, it's very difficult to say at the moment who's up, who's down, um, because you know, no one really, if we're being honest, knows what the hell is going on. So the official ruling is that it's febrile at the moment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you heard it here first, um, Kevin. I know you've got to shoot off to Parliament now. Um, I just thought I'd, I'd quickly ask you for um, your candidate for weirdest story of the past few days. Well, the one that actually that sprung for me was, was last night was absolutely bizarre. That, that Laura Coonsberg, almost in a throwaway tweet, mentioned that um, the Brexiteers who went to Checkers on Sunday, who we mentioned earlier, were now being called the Grand Wizards, which, you know, very quickly people realised uh, on Twitter that, um, or made, made the point that the Grand Wizards are um, the leaders of the Ku Klux Klan. So if you're um, right of centre, white, middle-aged men, it's probably not a good look to compare yourselves to the KKK. Um, so there was a little bit of a rollback. Uh, I asked one person at ERG, and they blamed, I won't swear, but they blamed it on an elderly idiot, although they didn't say the word idiot, um, who had basically shot their mouth off and they shouldn't have and would be very quickly reminded not to do so again. Um, and Laura put out a, clar- a clarification tweet saying, uh, well, actually, you know, it was a gentle nickname that one or two have um, been called and it was no attempt to connect them to the Cox clan. But, I mean, it was like, good grief, you know, as if things weren't mad enough, you know. So we've now got people um, using KKK nicknames. It's just, um, I think we all need a holiday, but unfortunately, there's too much work to be done, so we can't get a holiday. <laughs> Nicky, did anything jump out at you over the past few days as particularly weird, or are we just living in kind of default weird times at the moment? I, I think we're in default weird times. I'm not to say weird, but touching, I think, I thought it was very nice that Jacob Rees-Mogg took his son to Chequers, because I know, obviously, his son wasn't part of the official guest list, but, you know, if you know, this is a wonderful opportunity. How often do you get to see the Prime Minister's country residence? And, you know, I think, actually, that's rather nice when a dad goes, you know what, I'll sneak my son into that. So I thought that was lovely. <laughs> A bit, a bit of bonding over a, a checkers visit. Um, well, I'm afraid that is all we've got time for this week, guys. Um, my colleague Emilio Castellice will probably be back in the next few days with another podcast to update you on uh, a bunch more momentous events. But um, thanks very much for listening. And uh, don't forget you can sign up to our free seven-day-a-week breakfast briefing by going to politicshome.com forward slash register. See you soon. 